Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. America has fallen in love with the best fiends and its cute characters in this fiendishly fun, five-star rated, free-to-download mobile puzzle game. Enjoy an epic storyline and hours of gameplay that are easy to learn but difficult to master. Solve thousands of fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters on Best Fiends, the five-star rated mobile game on the Apple App Store and Google Play. Download Best Fiends for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's Best Fiends, like friends without the R. Best Fiends. We're back with Case Closed. I'm Charlie, your true crime guide, as we go through this case. Over the last few episodes, we heard from the prosecution— they presented their case that Hemi Newman and Andreas Neidemann were having an affair and that the alleged affair was the reason Hemi killed Rusty. But now we shift to the defense's case. They have to not only prove motive, but also prove that Hemi was mentally ill at the time of the murder, that he didn't know right from wrong. We begin with the defense and with Olivia Newton-John and Barry White. During the pretrial hearing, Hemi's lawyers present their case. They say Hemi was experiencing delusions. The media jump on the idea that Hemi had delusions involving Newton-John and White. Because of this media frenzy at the actual hearing, the defense wants detailed descriptions of the visions barred from questioning. But the prosecution objected, and the judge sided with the state. The evidence would be coming in, starting with his illness. As Hemi's attorneys laid out their case, their first push was to show that his mental illness was no laughing matter. To do this, they called Monique Metch, Hemi's younger sister, to tell the jury of growing up with a father who survived the Nazi death camps, only to bring some of the horrors home. During cross-examination, D.A. Robert James sought to show that while Hemi may have suffered trauma in childhood, it didn't translate to the sort of mental illness Hemi now claimed. Next, the defense called Dr. Julie Rand Dorney, the psychiatrist who described her forensic evaluation of Hemi, along with Dr. Peter Thomas. She noted that Hemi never spoke of seeing angels or demons, but did see one in the inkblot test administered by Dr. Thomas, who also testified. The test also showed disorder, paranoia, weird magical thinking, after Dorney recalled how she recommended further exploration of confusion, possible psychosis, mood disorder, paranoia disorder, the expert who did that follow-up, Dr. Adriana Flores, took the stand to deliver testimony that served as the heart of the defense case. She testified that Newman was not criminally responsible for the death of Rusty Snyderman, and that at the time of the shooting of Snyderman, Newman did not have the mental capacity to distinguish between right and wrong in relation to the shooting. That he had a disorder, a mental illness called bipolar 1 disorder with psychosis, she said, adding, he was manic in that phase of the bipolar 1 disorder, and he was experiencing psychosis. 
Specifically, he was experiencing some delusions. Giving the jury a tutorial, Flores sought to dispel some of the myths about bipolar disorder, telling them the swings from depression to manic behavior don't necessarily happen overnight. The order to kill, Hemi told her, came from the demon at the dinner party, and that the angel returned a month later in the car. All the while, Dr. Flores said, Andrea was pushing and pulling him, one moment expressing desire, the next pledging herself to Rusty. It's very clear that they were having an affair, Dr. Flores said, but added, it's the nature of the relationship they were having that he was delusional about. Hemi believed that his and Andrea's special soul-to-soul -soul connection meant they were destined to be together forever. What Andrea thought could only be gleaned from her hot and cold emails. She refused to be examined by Flores. Andrea fed into Hemi's delusions, manipulating him into believing what she believed and thinking what she thought. Under cross-examination, Dr. Flores acknowledged, I cannot say with 100% certainty that what was in my report is accurate and my opinion is correct, but I believe both are correct based on my experience and testing. I do not believe I have evidence that is consistent with Hemi lying. On the afternoon of Thursday, March 8th, Hemi declined to take the stand to testify in his own defense. It was almost 4 p.m., but Judge Adams once again told lawyers to call another witness whose testimony would spill into the next day. The next person to testify was Pamela Crawford. You'll remember Pamela as the psychiatrist the prosecution hired to examine Hemi. Her sessions were videotaped, unlike the sessions with the other psychotherapists. She's highly qualified, but you'll remember that at the time of the trial, she was not currently board certified, having allowed her certification to lapse three years earlier. She was also quite expensive and charged $60,000 for her work. The defense tries to prevent her from testifying. Before psychiatrist Pamela Crawford was to testify before the jury, she was grilled in a hearing by the defense. Hemi's lawyers argued that she didn't have the credentials to be considered an expert, but Judge Adams allowed her testimony. Crawford returned the next morning, Friday, March 9th, and told the jury that Hemi easily could be faking his mental illness. Somebody of his intelligence could lie to therapists and manipulate the tests. Before his arrest, Hemi showed that he could cope and thrive, particularly at work, with no mental impairment, thinking clearly, planning, and following through on those plans. The prosecution went to the videotape, playing snippets of Hemi talking about seeing a demon who sounded like Barry White and an angel that looked like Olivia Newton-John, the testimony the defense had sought to bar. The clips showed that while these details emerged in his interview with Crawford, it was Hemi, not the psychiatrist, who came up with the names. They also showed the clip of Hemi saying that the first time he ever said he was driven to kill by visions was when he was in jail talking to his attorney while trying to come up with a defense. The most chilling portions of the interviews came when Hemi explained his preparations to kill Rusty. I had gotten my marching orders, and this was just another one of the things that I needed to do, Hemi was seen telling Crawford. What did you have to do to plan that, she asked in their jail interview. Initially, like any project, the first thing that you do is say, what is the desired outcome? And you know the desired outcome is what I've been told, and that is, Rusty needed to die, he said. 
leaving the only question of how it would be done. Stab him? Shooting? So you go through different concepts. His project review, he said, led him to shooting as the best option. It would be, he said, the cleanest way. So you got the gun? asked Crawford. The first thing I did? I took a class on gun safety. I don't want to hurt anybody, was Hemi's response. Hemi then led Crawford through his first attempt on Rusty's life on November 10th, 2010, what turned out to be a dress rehearsal, down to the disguise and use of a rental car. I put on a disguise, and there was a road, a street parallel to their street, with a pedestrian walkway through the woods, he said. So I had gone to their house at like 5 a.m., and the reason why I was in disguise was because in case something went wrong, Rusty wouldn't recognize me, and Andrea wouldn't find out. Anyway, Hemi continued, I parked in the street and walked over to their house at 5 a.m., maybe 4.30 a.m. It was really early. I crawled through the neighbors and made my way very quietly to the side of the house. I just laid there and waited. I believed Rusty was going to take a walk and come back to the house. That was the plan. I was just going to sit there and wait until Rusty came back. I just laid by the side of the house, where the air conditioner, gas, water is. Their house is on a hill, so by laying down, people walking by the street wouldn't see me. I had a wig, a mustache, I had jeans, a shirt, and a coat, because it was pretty cold. So the idea was I would see Rusty drive away. First, I made sure Andrea left with Sophia. Once that happened, the idea would be to have Rusty drive away, and when he comes back, as the garage opens, I would make my way into the garage and then shoot him. The plan was foiled by a gas leak, which Hemi hadn't caused, a pure coincidence that spared Rusty's life for eight days. He smelled the gas, so he came to the side of the house, Hemi said. He saw me laying there. I think he thought I was a homeless person. He said something. I mumbled something back. He went back to get Ian and started to drive away. I got up and ran away and back to my car, went through the pathway and drove away. The next week, I got a beard because he had already seen me with the mustache, so I got a different wig. I said I'll just follow him to the school and make sure that he drops Ian off at the school and that's it. And do it there? asked Crawford. Yeah. Could you get away with that? she asked. Yeah. Once I put things in motion, they happen. That's the way I work. Once the ideas are fostered and I put all the elements in place, I can almost oversee it to make sure everything is taking place and intervene if I have to, but I'm a great, great executioner. Once a plan is in place, it's going to happen. After the tapes were played, Crawford was cross-examined. But there was nothing the defense could do on cross-examination to mitigate the power of the videotape and Hemi's methodical and seemingly clear-headed account of how he carried out his plans to kill Rusty. Shortly before noon, the jury was sent home and told that closing arguments would begin the next day. We'll take a look at those closing arguments after the break. This episode is supported by the highly anticipated thriller The Escape Room by Megan Golden. Vincent, Jules, Sylvia, and Sam are Wall Street hotshots at the top of their game. They've mastered the art of the deal and celebrate their success in style. And they love to compete, so they jump at the chance to show off their skills in an escape room. But when the lights go off and the doors stay shut, it quickly becomes clear that this is no harmless competition. This is a fight for survival. Trapped in the dark, 
the colleagues must put aside their rivalries and work together to solve cryptic clues. But as the game begins to reveal the team's darkest secrets, the stakes mount higher and higher. As tempers fray and the clues turn deadly, they must solve one final chilling puzzle. Which one of them will kill in order to survive? Pre-order The Escape Room by Megan Golden wherever you buy books. Click the link in the show notes to learn more. If you're liking Case Closed, you'll love the podcast American Hysteria. American Hysteria explores moral panics like stranger danger and satanic ritual abuse, urban legends like poisoned Halloween candy and phantom clowns, and conspiracy theories like the gay agenda and the Illuminati. You'll hear forgotten moments from American history, like when Elvis Presley joined forces with Nixon in the war on drugs. You'll even hear about why breakfast cereal tycoon John Harvey Kellogg, yes, that Kellogg, thought candy was a gateway to unspeakable sin. Host Chelsea Weber-Smith, a former fantastical thinker and growing skeptic, gives a sometimes heartfelt, sometimes hilarious, sometimes horrifying look at how American freakouts shape our history, psychology, politics, and culture. She makes us all into believers, one way or another. From Skylark Media, you can now binge all of Season 1, and Season 2 is airing now. Subscribe to American Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. We're back, and the trial is nearly over. It's time for the closing arguments to begin. On Tuesday, March 13, 2012, Robert Rubin stood before the jury and talked about what his client had done to the family of Rusty Snyderman. They lost their son, brother, father, he said. We have to prove insanity, Rubin continued, the courtroom filled with family and friends of both sides, including Hemi's mother, who sat behind him in the audience section. Andrea was still barred from the courtroom, but Rusty's brother and father were there. Rubin said the legal threshold for proving insanity was a preponderance of evidence, more this than that. It was not, he said, the far more rigorous standard of beyond a reasonable doubt faced by the prosecution to prove the murder charge. Rubin laid out the options that the judge would later enumerate. Not guilty, not guilty by reason of insanity, guilty, and guilty but mentally ill. That last option held the power of a conviction, and he urged the jury to reject that as a compromise. Guilty but mentally ill is guilty, Rubin said. Quick note here, since I know it might be confusing. There are four options. We know about guilty and not guilty. Not guilty by reason of insanity would be a type of exoneration for Hemi. He wouldn't be charged for the crime, but he might be sent to a psychiatric institution. Guilty but mentally ill is similar, except Hemi would be charged with a crime. Instead of going to jail, he would be sentenced to time in an institution. Back to closing statements by defense lawyer Rubin. He then launched a broadside against the prosecution's expert, Dr. Crawford, tarring her as overpaid and underqualified and lumping her in with Andrea Snyderman. Two people got on that stand and lied to you in your face, he said. One got $2 million, the other got 60000 Andrea Snyderman and the life insurance policy and Dr. Crawford and her consulting fee. These were the twin villains in the case, Rubin argued. 
Reuben's co-counsel, Doug Peters, spoke, and when he did, it was with a fury. He branded Andrea as an adulterer, tease, calculator, liar, and master manipulator. Andrea, he said, intuited everything the mental health professionals would later diagnose. Andrea knew Hemi was losing his mind, Peters said. Sophia and Ian's daddy's blood is on the hands of Andrea Snyderman. She is the person, the one person, who knew that Hemi was spinning out of control. She knew Rusty had been shot because she had primed the pump, planted the seed, stoked the fire. She knew that she was with someone who was sick. In the end, Peters said, this case is about one bad, one really bad woman, Andrea Snyderman. The gun was in Hemi's hand, but the trigger, I suggest, was pulled by Andrea Snyderman. District Attorney Robert James had the final word. After a courtroom break, Hemi returned to his seat in apparent good spirits, smiling to his mother. But as James launched into what would be an impassioned summation, the DA insisted that his grinning face could not be trusted. He's not insane. He's just evil, said James. He's not crazy, but he's a co-conspirator, Andrea being the other party, although not charged. Again, another instance of this trial being centered around Andrea. Taking the jury through the law, as the defense had, James ticked off the various elements of each charged defense and argued that the state had proved them. The biggest was malice aforethought, the centerpiece of murder charges everywhere in the country. Hemi planned it like a work project, James said. The other legal element, he said, was Hemi's affirmative defense of insanity, a defense that James mocked. I can go back three decades to quote Flip Wilson. The devil made me do it. The angels made me do it, he said. But under the law, with an affirmative defense, the prosecution need only prove that he committed the crime. Since the law gives a presumption of sanity, something the defense did not bring up, he noted, we do not have the burden of proving he was not insane. We do not have to prove that he is sane. We don't have that burden. We have to prove nothing. It was up to the defense to prove insanity, and here they failed, he argued. Just because Hemi had a traumatic childhood or possibly suffered bipolar disorder didn't mean he failed to know the difference between right and wrong when he gunned down Rusty. James wrapped up his argument by displaying two photos, one of Rusty alive and happy, the other of him bloodied and near death after the shooting. On November 18, 2010, the defendant, Hemi Newman, did this, he said. This twisted little man, he did this to Rusty Snyderman, and they had the temerity and gall to call him a good man. Good men don't sleep with other men's wives. Good men don't do what he did. At 1.45 on March 15th, a message went to the judge. The jury had reached a verdict. It took about an hour to get everybody into the courtroom. Hemi's mother arrived. So too did Rusty's parents, Donald and Marilyn Snyderman, and brother Stephen with his wife Lisa. Andrea was not there, barred by the court. At about 2.20 p.m., the lawyers took their seats and Hemi was brought in by the bailiff. Judge Adams ordered that the jurors be brought in. Solemn and grim-faced, they took their seats. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I have been informed by the deputy that you have reached a verdict, said Judge Adams. Would the foreperson please stand? 
A woman stood in the jury box. Madam Foreperson, have you and the others reached a verdict? Yes, she said in a clear voice. Would you start at the top of the form and read it in its entirety, he said. The jury had two counts to consider, murder and the use of a firearm in the commission of a felony. The forewoman began reading in a strong voice. In the Superior Court of DeKalb County, State of Georgia, State of Georgia versus Hemi Newman, defendant, Hemi sat at the defense table, showing no emotion, as always, in a navy blue sweater over a light blue shirt. We, the jury, find the defendant as to count one, the forewoman paused, her voice faltering. Guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, but mentally ill. Hemi pursed his lips, took his eyes away from the forewoman, and stared down at the table, then slowly lifted his head up with his eyes closed. Rusty's father buried his head in his hand and seemed to cry. His brother appeared stunned. Hemi's mother looked down. Count two, continued the forewoman, of the use of gun charge. We, the jury, find the defendant as to count two, guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Hemi stared back toward the jury, no expression now. Then he turned forward and closed his eyes and seemed to be talking to himself, as if saying a prayer. His defense attorney, Robert Rubin, grabbed his shoulder to reassure him. The jury was dismissed, their work done. The judge allowed a brief break. Wasting no time, he moved on to sentencing. This was the time for family members on both sides to speak out, pleading for condemnation or mercy, making the hearing as much about catharsis as legal argument. The first family member to speak was Rusty's brother, Stephen. With emotion welling in his voice, Stephen said, he had no right to do this. He had no right to anything my brother had built. He had no right to take Rusty from us, especially Sophia and Ian. Every single day of our lives, there will be a hole in our hearts and in our lives where Rusty should be. All the court could do is make sure Hemi is confined to prison for the remainder of his days, forced to confront the hurt and devastation he has caused to so many, Stephen said. We ask you to show him the same mercy he showed Rusty and punish him in the only appropriate manner life without the possibility of parole. The last to speak was Hemi. Pay attention to how Hemi distances himself from this terrible tragedy with what he says next. He never once admits that he was the one to cause the tragedy, and this is something that I think the judge picks up on when he finally does sentence Hemi. Your Honor, he began, his voice full of resignation. I prepared this statement several weeks ago to express my sense of loss for the death of Rusty Snyderman. I do not think that anyone feels that anybody won here. Everybody lost. I hadn't written this down, but a lot of what Mr. Snyderman said about Rusty is true. It is. He was a good man with so much ahead of him, and I'm so, so, so sorry for their loss. This is a terrible tragedy, he continued. First of all, for Sophia and Ian, the Snydermans, Rusty's dad, his mom, brother. Andrea should not have had to bury him. They should not have had to undergo the pain, the anguish, the sorrow, the loss. And, as Mr. Snyderman just stated, it goes on, and it will go on forever. The Greenbergs, Andrea's parents, suffered the loss of a beloved son-in-law. It is also a tragedy for three other children, 
for Lee, Tom, and Addie, he said, mentioning his son and daughters. And countless family and friends who saw a person they loved, admired, and respected, who saw him arrested and shamed, charged now and convicted. I am so, so, so sorry. I can't say it enough. I can't say enough to all of you, to precious children, all five of them, to the Snydermans, to the Greenbergs, my parents, the family, friends, and community at large. I am sorry from the deepest part of me, Your Honor. That's all I have. He took a seat. The judge, who had spent so much of the trial nudging and prodding and speeding the proceedings along, handed down a sentence in rapid-fire fashion. Mr. Newman, would you stand with your lawyers, please? Judge Adams drew a breath and then continued with barely a pause. Mr. Newman, earlier this afternoon, a jury returned a verdict as to count one, guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, but mentally ill, which was the murder count. As to count two, they also find you guilty beyond a reasonable doubt as to possession of a firearm in commission of a crime. As a result of the finding of the jury, and based upon all the facts and circumstances I've heard today, I'm going to sentence you to prison for life without parole. As to count two, I'm going to sentence you to five years in prison to run consecutively to count one. A guard handcuffed Hemi behind his back. The metallic click could be heard throughout the courtroom. Hemi glanced at his mother as he was led away. Hemi is tried, sentenced, and ultimately taken away. The case should be over. This story should be over. But as with all suspenseful crime stories, this one isn't complete without a twist at the end. And that twist is Andrea. Next time, we look at what happened to Andrea and why Hemi's trial became her trial. Keep listening for more on Case Closed. Case Closed is a production of Macmillan Podcasts. This season is based on the book Crazy for You by Michael Fleeman. Get the book or audiobook using the link in our show notes. The show is produced by Becky Celestina with help from Sarah Grill and Alyssa Martino. We also want to thank Michael Fleeman. Can't wait to hear what really happened to Rusty Snyderman? Hear all of this season right now on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcherpremium.com slash caseclosed and use code CLOSED to start your free trial. I'm Charlie Spicer. Thanks so much for listening.